Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. I'm Joe Barrett. The mid-19th century was an exciting time for science. Dramatic discoveries and new theories were turning the world upside down. But science was not the world of specialisms and laboratories that we know today. Indeed, much of it was conducted on a very domestic scale. Just as there were manufacturing dynasties at the time, like the Cadburys, and literary families like the Brontes, there were a number of scientific families who had a huge impact on the way science came to be practiced and perceived. One such family were the Herschels, contemporaries, friends and neighbours of the Darwins, and for whom the term scientist was first used. I met up with Dr Emily Winterburn, who has recently completed her PhD on the Herschel family, at Darwin's restored family home just south of London, a house very like that of the Herschels, to explore with her the complex and inseparable link between family life and scientific progress in this period. Our story begins with William Herschel, a German-born musician who moved to the UK before making his name as astronomer, composer and man of science. His father was an army musician. Uh, His mother was completely illiterate. They were quite a kind of poor family, lots of brothers, two sisters. His father trained all the boys, never mind the girls, but he trained all the boys to be musicians. William says from the moment from from the moment he was big enough to hold a violin, he was taught so that by the age of something like 14, they were ready to be auditioned for work in the, in the, army, in the army band. My father's greatest attachment to music determined him to endeavour to make all his sons complete musicians. But they were all brought up to learn not just to be musicians like their father, but to be better musicians than their father. They were taught to aspire higher. They were, they were taught to kind of learn how to be court musicians. They were encouraged to learn languages so that they could teach opera and they could teach singing to the great and the good. So they were kind of brought up to aspire higher than their parents and that's what he brought to John's education. I mean, obviously the way you master music is by doing things over and over and over again until you're perfect. And that's kind of what he's... And so like, you know, every minute of John's day is filled with various educational activities. There's not much time for kind of playing or fun, particularly as far as... That's the impression he gives, anyway. When William did set himself up in London, he went about studying and mapping the sky and embarked on a career that would earn him the reputation and place in the history of science that he holds today. He grows up as a musician, but then when he comes to England, he turns to science. He starts building his own telescopes, starts training his eyes to see through them. Eventually, he discovers Uranus, and that's that's what makes him famous. That's what gets him a king's pension and allows him to devote his entire you know, give up music. He kind of changes the way that astronomy is done. That's why he's. I mean, partly he's because he discovers the first planet to be discovered since antiquity. But the other reason that he's important is because he kind of changes the focus of astronomy. So before that, astronomers are interested in the solar system. They're interested in to the things that are nearby and he starts to look at them in a bit more detail. So he particularly looks, he, he draws up catalogues of double stars and clusters and nebulae and starts to look in more detail about what they actually are. But despite his achievements and the considerable respect he earned, he was still insecure in many respects, which again went on to influence the teaching of his son. He'd found that although he was caught sort of accepting, you know, obviously he'd discovered a planet and he'd worked out theories about kind of the way stars evolve and he'd done all sorts of amazing things in terms of you know and he was he was kind of the astronomer Britain's astronomer at the time I mean when 
Joseph Banks from the Royal Society had a question about astronomy, he would ask William Herschel. So he had done very well. At the same time, he did feel slightly looked down upon. You know, he, he did something technical. He made instruments. You know, he never had a Cambridge degree. He made his own instruments. And most importantly, he didn't understand maths as well as he thought he should. So there's a nice correspondence between him and, um, and La Lande and Laplace in France, where he kind of, he's obviously sent them his papers and they've sent back loads of corrections. And he's kind of written, his letter says, oh, well, I was very tired and you know, I did have lots of things to do and that was a really obvious mistake and I'm, it's not that I don't understand it. I have so little leisure for practice that it would be no wonder, on account of the multiplicity of things that take up my time and continually disturb my thoughts when I'm calculating, if I had made many more blunders than I have made. The using of the heliocentric instead of the geocentric place of the GS was an oversight in the calculation of the angle of position, which I've since corrected. Upon the whole, I once more return to you and Mr. Delombre thanks for your friendly notice of my blunders, which I hope you will ascribe to my busy situation. But he obviously didn't understand it because he then, when he comes to training John, he gets the best tutors and he gets tutors who know both English fluxions, so the sort of Newtonian. Then um, France has a different version, uh, which is sort of more what we think of as calculus now. Uh, and most people didn't understand both of them. They understand one or the other. But William made sure that, that John understood both and so that he, would, he could excel from a very young age. He's trained to follow his father's footsteps. He's trained to become... A natural philosopher and part of the Royal Society and do great things and when he goes to university and makes his own friends he start, starts to sort of question that as, a, as an ambition dabbles in various kind of experimental sciences a bit of chemistry a bit of mineralogy getting his hands dirty kind of things that he wasn't he wasn't taught to do and gradually builds up a reputation that's separate from his parents writes a book preliminary discourses on the nat on natural philosophy a very influential book lots of people read it Darwin claims to have read it and that's what inspired him to go into science it kind of defines what science is before that you've got astronomy chemistry mineralogy all separate things he kind of draws out the central themes and so that kind of makes his name that kind of makes him a famous man of science you don't even have the term scientist until 1833 and even after that it takes a long time for people to pick it up and it was kind of introduced as a as a joke as a kind of well if we, you know we need to call ourselves something um, and you have artists, so why not scientists? And it was invented for John Herschel, primarily. It's one of his friends kind of said it as a throwaway comment that then got taken up a little bit more. William Herschel's time, there isn't anything, there's no scientist. I mean, you have natural philosophy, which is sort of broadly looking at the natural world, but you sort of have your own distinct... So he was an astronomer... Um, and he tried to train his son to be more of a natural philosopher, to be a sort of broader, more intellectual, less hands-on man of science. You'd have man, you have men of science and women of science, and you have natural philosophers, but you don't have scientists. But it's, it's sort of late century before people are calling themselves scientists with any great pride. Uh, I know this maybe is a completely obvious question, mm. but what was the what was the stigma? I think it's partly the idea that it becomes a job. And so, and, you know, whereas, whereas if you're doing it in your home and you're a natural philosopher or you're a man of science, you're just broadly interested in these kind of things and it's just something that you do because, you know, for a higher intellectual purpose, it's not um, something that you do to earn a living or anything as sort of, you know, degrading as that. Part of my argument with John Herschel is that he didn't find, you know, he was actually, although 
he personally refused to accept money for for the science he did, and he liked the independence of having independent wealth and being able to choose, pick and choose his projects. He still argued for there being kind of government funding for science. When there were opportunities to get paid for little bits of science, he did try and kind of put people in touch. He liked the idea of people who couldn't afford to do it just as a hobby, being able to still do science and being able to get some money for it. So he wasn't really opposed to science being a profession. And he kind of wanted his children to, some of his children at least, to get some money for the science they were doing. This was the science room, wasn't it? We're now walking through Darwin's library, although it really resembles more of a study or an office. John Herschel would have worked from a similar setting. It's all his science, you bet, isn't it? All his kind of, can I call it sealing wax science? It's all kind of bits that they've kind of stuck together to try and make experiments. The idea of a scientist didn't exist, and so neither did the idea of a lab investigating the natural world and family life rubbed up against each other. They occupied the same space. The day-to-day comings and goings within the homes of the Darwins and the Herschels influenced the science that was possible as much as this investigation left its mark on the growing Herschel children. We've got, on the main table, we've got all his writing and various books that I think have been sent to him, but also uh, all the tools to make microscope slides. Couldn't say that at all then. Because they have exactly the same thing, lots of little... um, pillboxes made of, it looks like kind of shaved wood. I mean, some of, in the Herschel collection, some of them are actually for pills, but as well they use them for little kind of crystal samples and uh, just, just little kind of bits and bobs to, to use for experiments. This is obviously, I guess this is his lab, this is his... I don't know that this is necessarily where he was going to teach his children, but it's where he kind of does his own research, because a lot of the books... But then in the, with the Herschel family, um, when the older daughters are teaching the younger daughters... One of them comes across a question that she doesn't know the answer to and she goes off to his library, she goes off to her father's library to kind of go and look up. So I think it is that there's a kind of, this is where you go and find things out. OK, this wooden cabinet over here with lots of little drawers with little labels on. Um, there's a couple of kind of mini versions of that at the, um, at the National Maritime Museum, which is kind of why I started looking at the whole family because within each drawer is all kinds of little pieces of science but also pieces of domestic sort of tat really I mean there's kind of little sewing scissors and a pin cushion but then there's also you know a microscope slide with a crocodile's tear on it and little little lenses and little bits of just sort of bits of material stuck together with sealing wax that they've obviously kind of done to kind of do little makeshift experiments in this that and the other Sort of like a kitchen drawer. Yeah, yeah, it kind of really shows the way that, how immersed in the family it, it obviously was, that you don't have kind of science as one thing and family life as another. It's just that it's a kind of convenient drawer. And so mostly you'll keep your science things all together and in there because it's nice and neat. But, you know, sometimes if you just need to put something away. The Herschels did have a kind of separate room for their science because there's, between the two siblings that go to university, to go to Cambridge, they kind of write to each other. I mean, there's like... 25 years between them or something but they kind of write to each other about you know I'm going to clear up the lab is there anything you want to keep kind of you know kind of thing but at the same time it was still part of their part of their home and part of their family life by the end of the 19th century there's this idea that science has has gone out of the home if you're going to be a scientist you work for 
a company or you work for a university and you go to a place of work to do your science. Whereas at this period, so in the mid-19th century and earlier, science is quite often done in the home, which means that you get a different set of people doing it because it means that family members are far more involved in the process. It's not a kind of separate... Professionalisation is now being kind of broken down a little bit and it's not quite such a simple story as there is a general trend towards taking science further and further outside the home and therefore excluding people like women and children from the process. In the next room we come across a collection of wooden toys and picture books which demonstrate the unavoidable link between science, family and learning within the home. So this is more this is more a kind of mid-19th century ed- ed- childhood so John's education was kind of very focused and was very um, educational, but he made sure that his children's was a bit more kind of balanced. There, was a, there were attempts to try and make education fun. I mean, there's a lot of kind of... Like Maria Edgeworth, she writes a very influential book about how to teach children. It's how to kind of make things fun but educational. So you shouldn't, tell, you shouldn't read them fairy stories. You should read them kind of educational fairy stories do fun things but always kind of give it an educational edge. And is that what we can see here in um, small toy animals? Yeah, exactly, because these are proper animals. There's there's no kind of unicorns or... There's a story about a pebble that's told from the point of view of the pebble and it tells you kind of the whole history of geology from the point of view of a pebble, but it's sort of aimed at children. It's kind of the idea of getting them to look at things more. I think in the 19th century you do get more of a kind of celebration of childhood, don't you? There's a lot more of a kind of child-centred focus to the family. And these are big families. I mean, the Darwins and the Herschels and the Aries are huge, you know, following the kind of Queen Victoria model. And now outside into the garden, which was seen as an increasingly important part of 19th century child-rearing, a space occupying the middle ground between the home and the natural world, which was the focus of science. No, big gardens are big. When the Herschels come back from South Africa in... 1838 they choose a house not dissimilar from this one uh, not that far away from this one and they choose it part of the reason they choose it is because of the big grounds which um, the sort of latest educational literature childcare literature has said is ideal for you know for strengthening the lungs of young children and it encourages them to express themselves and to run around roaring like lions I think it said Um, and she, she does then complain that that's all they do they just roar like lions all the time and it's deafening and that's why you need a big garden it's not just that it's pretty it's that it's sort of it's beneficial we're now going to jump back a generation to william's sister caroline john's aunt to start to look at the importance of the herschel women in the lives of the more well-known men of science in the family yeah i mean one of the things that's nice about looking at a whole family is that you can look at the role women play in these families without needing the women to do amazing things in science. When there are histories of women in science written, you tend to get you know, Marie Curie, always, and a couple of others, and it's, but they have to have done something amazing and to have their name attached to that amazing thing. And that's not always that practically possible, and especially in the time periods that we're looking at. So Caroline Herschel is really unusual for her time. She's not typical. I mean, she's typical in some ways. She is reliant on the men in her family to provide her with a scientific education and to provide her with access to scientific research and to provide her with a means of getting her research 
known to other people. And she's also typical in the fact that she's always, and this is something that always that seems to catch historians out, is that she's typical in being incredibly self-depreciating. So that when you read it, it's, I mean, she is she she goes so over the top in her sort of attempt to be ladylike, uh, and she does occasionally kind of let slip. There's a nice quote about her saying, you know, that in a in a man it would be ambition, but in a woman it's it's vanity. And so I'm, you know. But I'm allowed to be a little bit because I'm 90 or something. <laughs> I think she says. So, um, what did she actually do? See, I tend to focus on the things that stopped her doing more. But what she actually did was she was um, so she was William's assistant. So when they took observations, he would look at the star, she would look at the time, and then she would record both those because that's what you need for that. You need um, that's kind of your two points on the axis when you're trying to map all the stars, it's what they were trying to do, they were trying to map all the um, double stars, all the things that weren't just stars, basically, they are trying to map double stars, nebulae, and star clusters. And so she did that, she also rearranged, she, so she rewrote uh, an important catalogue, Flamsteed's star catalogue, so that it made, it was a more useful reference piece, and she corrected a lot of what she found in there as well. She also discovered what... She discovered lots of comets. The exact number depends on how you view priority, because <laughs> overall it was eight, but a couple of those she discovered at the same time as somebody else, and so they sometimes they have somebody else's name attached to them. Those are her real, proper, this-is-what-she-did achievements. But on top of that, a lot of what she did was take over all the things that William didn't want to do, thereby freeing up all his time and allowing him to do the things that he did. So, I mean, there's, although it's difficult to put a name on that, it's actually quite an important contribution to science. As might be expected, opportunities for girls were not the same as those for boys in the 19th century, but John and his wife Margaret were particularly keen to advance the education of their daughters, and science played an important part in this. The Herschels were perhaps ahead of their time, but they are good indicators of changing attitudes. The standard line is that... That education for girls in the 19th century was about making them decorative. Uh, and so you learnt accomplishments because that would sort of stop you getting bored when you were idling around your house not doing anything. That was what it meant to be middle class, was to kind of aspire to do nothing at all. But, like so many things, it's slightly being taken apart. And so there are, they were treated differently, but things like, I mean, Maria Edgeworth, um, has a nice bit about what a good subject science is to teach to young children and also to girls. And her argument for teaching it to girls is that um, accomplishments are there to stop girls getting bored when they're older. Science would do just the same job, but would also make your girls stand out in the marriage market. So with John and Margaret's children, they have a lot more girls than boys. And Margaret is really impressed with... I mean, she's 18 when she gets married, and John already has this quite quite established circle of friends many of which are kind of sort of intellectual women so there's people like Maria Edgeworth who writes who's who's a novelist but also writes books on education there's Maria Somerville who's an important woman of science and then of course there's Caroline Herschel who she's heard of and who she's very impressed with and she writes she certainly writes to Caroline and she may ask these other women how you become you know what what do you have to do to to get that level of expertise and she's talking to, to Maria Edgeworth asking her she was talking about some argument between John Herschel and one of his friends and she says 
In the abundance of your charity, pray come and infuse some of your own clear-sighted and right-thinking metaphysics into Herschel and Mr. Yule, who are just now deep in profound dissensions on these subjects and sadly want some fresh ideas on cause and effect. My poor brains are quite addled with it all, but there is enough of wickedness left in me to desire to see the gentleman floored by a woman. So she's really, she is really impressed with these, and she tries to give her, her girls a similar kind of high-level education to the boys. Caroline says, you know, you really ought to, you know, if, if you want to marry them off, you know, I was never married, if you want to marry them off, um, you're really going to have to play down this kind of, <laughs> teach them to, to hide their, their attainments. Was this attitude typical? They are quite probably quite ahead of their time. I mean, she, certainly when, when Constance goes to Cambridge, so there's a couple of reasons why lots of people don't choose to send their daughters to Cambridge. And one of them is that they just wouldn't pass the exams to get in. The other one is that it kind of gives them unrealistic expectations of, <laughs> of, their, of their adult life, that you know, they'll only be bored when they then have to you know, do the washing up. Starting with William, we've looked at several Herschels and their individual and collective contribution to science. We're going to hear from Emily one more time to tell us what she has learned from studying three generations of the Herschel family. Well, one of the things that's quite interesting about what they do as a family, I mean, individually they do, you know, they discover this, they discover that, but what they do as a family, I think, is promote science as something interesting and fun. And so when William discovers Uranus, that's something quite tangible and easy to understand and they're written about in various magazines they're sort of you know they're kind of color supplement fodder to be anachronistic but the same is true of later generations that um, John deliberately rejects a kind of super academic sort of elitist career in science and chooses instead to write for encyclopedias This has been a production for Pod Academy, produced by me, Joe Barrett, in conversation with Dr. Emily Winterburn. Thanks to English Heritage and the staff of Downhouse for their support. The property is open to the public at weekends and is a fascinating insight into the life of Darwin and his family. The music you can hear was composed by John Herschel and performed by the London Mozart Players. And if you enjoyed this podcast, there are many more programmes focused on academic research, available for free download in our Humanities and Social Sciences, Science and the Environment, Arts and Culture, and Business and Economics faculties. Go to podacademy.org or join the debate on Twitter at podacademy.org.